You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. All right, so here we are. It's, it's uh, February, uh, excuse me, Friday, uh, October 16th, 2020. I have a great opportunity to uh, have a conversation with my good friend Steve Horowitz, an actual fellow graduate student, uh, Steve Horowitz, about the, uh, the George Mason Economics Department, the Mercatus Center, at that time what was known as the Center for Study of Market Processes, in which Steve and I were very much embedded in it, in particular, our beloved professor, Don Lavoie, and the impact that he has had on us going forward. So thanks for joining me, uh, Steve. My, absolutely my pleasure. So um, as you know, Mercatus is celebrating his 40th anniversary at George Mason University this year. And uh, so we're doing these kind of uh, retrospectives. Um, I had an earlier conversation with Karen Vaughn, you know, uh, about stuff. And uh, so tell us a little bit about the Steve Horowitz origin story, and in particular, your origin story as an economist and then as an Austrian economist and a social thinker. Well, you know, my, my origin story is I, I was a libertarian first, and I, you know, it's probably worth, many people probably heard this story over the years, but, but the, the short version is I was working when I was 15, 16, working at the public library, uh, my hometown. And uh, I was like a lot of kids, at, you know, especially young boys in their teens, fascinated by anybody with a theory. Like I read a lot of science fiction. I read Bible prophecy. I read anything, anyone with a sort of weird, wacky view of the world. And there one day, and this book comes across, a new book comes in, it comes across the desk. And it was Robert Ringer's Restoring the American Dream, which was a, Ringer was an investment guru, libertarian type in the 70s. But he wrote this book in about 79, 980 on the sort of cusp of the Ed Clark campaign, and it was an argument for libertarianism. And and uh, I like, oh, okay, here's another guy with a theory, right? So I read it, and and it was that experience that I would have again in a couple of years of 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 the oh, this is how I've always thought about things. Somebody actually wrote it down somewhere, and 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 so I read Ringer's book and loved it. And being the precocious mid-teen that I was, I said, all right, well. I want to learn more about this. Let's look at his reference list. <laughs> Who's, who are the books that he's talking about? And uh, I looked at the list, and one book he talked about pretty frequently. Turns out, it, amusingly, was in the library. It was in our public library, and that was Rothbard's For a New Liberty. So I kind of went from the, you know, the baby pool into the deep end <laughs> uh, right away. And, and that sort of made me a, a, a libertarian uh, and... and also in the process got me interested in thinking about sort of economics and all this. But, but I went off to college at Michigan, not intending to be an economics major. Uh, I was interested in computer science and some other things. So uh, I didn't take any econ my first semester. And then, so second semester, I'm like, all right, I could use a fifth class here. You know, I should probably learn some economics if I'm going to be serious about this libertarian stuff because it seemed important. And then I had the experience, I think, that many of us economists have had, where you take that first principles course and you go, oh, yes, 
right? Again, so yeah, I have always sort of understood the world this way, but somebody actually, you know, did it systematically and, and, and wrote it down. Uh, and that was, okay, now I know what I'm majoring in. Uh, and so that's happening. And I'm also at the same time kind of following the world of libertarianism. And, and this leads to the, I think, the, the sort of rest of, you know, the economics and Austrian part of the question, which is, okay, I really like this stuff and I ended up double majoring in philosophy too. Uh, and I want to keep studying economics. Where do I do that? And understand that, you know, Pete, you of course know this, but I'm from a family of, you know, sort of PhDs and, and my dad was an academic. And so the idea of going into academia for me was always, you know, kind of a natural possibility. I'm like, okay, I want to go teach and do that. Just be an economist, do what these guys do. Where do I go? And around that time, uh, it might have been Reason, it might have been Inquiry Magazine or the old Libertarian Review. One of them, we used to have three magazines. Uh, one of them had an ad for the, for the program at Mason. Uh, and at the time, I was also beginning to read the Austrians. I just recently found a picture that was, my, my daughter found some old pictures and was, this picture was taken out on the beach, I think in Marco Island, Florida, around sometime when I was in college. And it's my three brothers and my mom are all lying out in the sun and I'm lying in the sun, I'm sitting in the sun and I'm reading a book. I can't tell for sure, but it's got an orange cover on it. And I'm pretty sure it's competition and entrepreneurship, right? So here I'm in like in the beach in Marco Island, right? Sitting up reading Kersner. So, okay. So there we go, right? So from there was a the question of where, you know, I, now I know I'm an Austrian or at least interested in Austrian economics. Where do I go to study this? Uh, and and then, then the more sort of question of, all right, there were really only two options at the time, which were Mason and, and NYU. I also applied to Yale. I honestly can't remember if I got accepted or not. It's not probably, I, I honestly can't remember. I won't, I won't say, but, but certainly I, I got accepted at NYU and there were some, you know, uh, uh, Mason was more generous with the financial support than NYU was. But this is the, this is the interesting story that's sort of relevant to, to this is also that summer after my junior year of college, I went to a Cato summer seminar out in, in at Dartmouth in New Hampshire when Cato used to really do these things for students. Uh, and among the speakers there were Don Lavoy uh, and Israel Kirzner. And uh, I went, you know, you know me, right? I went up to each of them and basically said, I'm thinking about Mason versus NYU. What are my advantages disadvantages right and got i thought pretty honest answers from both of them and so i, I had like a little you know sheet with the pluses and minuses and, and <laughs> right you know again shocking i know that i did this right <laughs> if i if i had excel back then it would have been a spreadsheet uh, <laughs> uh but it was clear and, and well two things were clear clear it was clear on sort of objective grounds that that i was going to get a better deal at mason uh I thought the idea of being a bigger fish in a smaller pond was a better place to be too. But Don was part of that. Right. And like, you know, Don, uh, Don, you, you know, okay, I want to, I want to work with this guy. Right. You, you, you knew you wanted to work with him. One little side story of this, this is 1984. And, and I remember Don in one of his lectures was doing like macro stuff. And he said, he said, well, he was talking about sort of banking and Rothbard and all this. And he said, well, of course, there's this, there's this whole new sort of version of this that, that's looking at the idea of free banking. There's a brand new book coming out 
sometime this summer from a, a young you know colleague of mine, young professor named, named Larry White, called Free Banking in Britain. That that you know, and I'm like, I'm writing this stuff down, right? Like, okay, I gotta go, I gotta go read this. So again, it was uh, uh, there was sort of destiny, and that that summer seminar was kind of destiny, and then informative, uh, and, and yeah, and and informative, informative. Right. Informative, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. And and uh, well, you know, you know, you know the next bit of the story, which is uh, so I applied to Mason and I and I came out to visit uh, and uh, the powers that be at the at the center at Mercatus, you know, stuck me with you and Dave and uh, Deb Walker for lunch. Uh, Thinking it was a good thing. It probably, for me, it was. I don't know about you guys, but for me, it was. Uh, I, you know, I've heard a few stories about what the reaction to me was after the fact, but that's different. Uh, and it was, but it was. It was great. It was like, okay. Uh, and it was interesting when taking my own kids now, you know, a few years back through college visits and realizing how important that peer effect is and sort of looking at, saying to them at the time, as you meet other students today, ask yourself, do I want to spend four years with these students? Do I want to study with these people? And for me, uh, you know, meeting, meeting you guys and your excitement about what was happening there uh, uh, and energy was like, okay, yeah, this is what, this is, this is the thing to do. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You know, when you think about those visits in my life, how fortuitous many of my different, you know, uh, visits for college were because uh my when I went to Grove City, which was a transfer from another college, I had an interaction with my coach at the other college in the morning that like really pissed me off. <laughs> and I came back and we didn't have a car because freshmen didn't have cars, you know, but I knew an upperclassman that had a car. And I said, and Rosemary was going to go to Grove City because it was close to Teal and, and her parents would let her go there rather than to, to, you know, to be near me, right? So she yeah. chose there. So I knew she was going there. And I said, on a Saturday, I said, get in the car. I said, I want to go see this place that she's going to go. Maybe I'll go there. And I went up there and the college is very weird. And the head of admissions was actually walking. And I was dressed like the two of us are dressed now. And kids at Grove City don't dress that way. No. So I think he thought we were like rioters or something. <laughs> and he said, how can I help you, young man? And I said, well, I'm just here to see the place. And, you know, at that time, I was who I was. So I was like, I'm a basketball player and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, I just came from Coach Barr's office. And then he marches me up to Coach Barr's office. And Coach Barr knew me. And so he said, okay, hold on. We got to sign this form to the NCAA. And I I talked to Coach Barr and Coach Lyle. Next thing I know, I was in the Grove City. Right. And it was no plan at all. When I went to, to GMU, I had just come back from visiting a law school. And Rosemary and I were both like, I'm not going to go to law school. <laughs> like, there's this ad from IHS that talks about this graduate school in economics. You know, uh, it's either NYU or GMU or Auburn, right? It's going to be right. one of those places I'm going to go. And we just got in a car and drove to Fairfax. And, you know, you know, when we walked on the campus, yeah. it looked like I was going on to a scene from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm going into institutional lengths. I get to the center, and Sharon Gable, who was the person before Colleen Moretta, was there. And uh, she goes, two things. She first introduces me to Don and to, because I'm, like, all excited, Google for Cocoa Puffs over Don, because right. I've read it. And Karen Vaughn, who I also had read. But Karen, if you remember, didn't talk to graduate students at that time. 
right? Like, right. you know, she, she was very formal. Let's put right. it that way. She was very formal. And uh, so I sit there and, and, and I see them and Don and her had just come back from something and Karen sort of looks at me. I'm trying to say, I'm so excited. And I must have read Rothbard. I must have said something about Rothbard. Right. I'm so excited. So she like walked out of the room and Don <laughs> says, you want to go to lunch? <laughs> and like, right. so I went to lunch with Don. Like it was yeah. just, you know, and it was yeah. amazing. But yeah. I did want to ask you a question. Enough, enough story time for me, right. but Here's an interesting thing that you observed, which is the first, one of the first books you read was Foreign New Liberty. Yeah. One of the first books of my, uh, that, for, that really formed my uh, imagination about what I want to do was Foreign New Liberty as a, as a teenager, right? Reading that book and changing yeah. like the way you think about things. And um, <clears throat> what do you think the difference is when people come to Rothbard, let's say the earlier generation that might have come to Rothbard through Man, Economy, and State, or later generations that might have come to him through the ethics of liberty yeah. versus the sweet spot time where we yeah, came, that's right. which is foreign new liberty, which is also Rothbard. Uh, it is most sort of left libertarianism. Yeah, kind of yeah that's right. No, I think, I think that, that, yeah, I think that, I, I think that, so if you came to Rothbard through man, economy and state, right? Cer certainly you were going to think of Rothbard as primarily an economist, yeah. and he was at the time. And it's not, I mean, again, I, I'm thinking my history here, it's really not till the late 60s and early 70s, it's Vietnam, it's all these other things where he really becomes involved in the politics of the day in ways, right? He wasn't really in the early, I mean, America's Great right. Depression is there. I mean, all that stuff that he's being, you know, an economist, right? Um, and, and I think when he be, you know, he makes the shift in the late 60s, early 70s. And I think you're exactly right. It was a kind of sweet spot. And it was a sweet spot that where he was at his most left libertarian, his most cosmopolitan, his whatever words you want to use for it. I mean, for new, the vision, it's the vision of for new liberty that I think is so, is so powerful. And, and I think, you know, uh, it, it's a, it's, it's also, it's been a long time since I've, uh, since I've read it. And I, and, and I need, I probably should, it would be great to go back and read it now. It begins with the abolitionists. Right. right. It, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, so it was like, okay, you know, if you were a young person with sort of uh, broadly liberal, what we now call progressive sort of sensibilities, right. But open to this, you, you go, yes. And especially if you were already like me, sort of thought you were a libertarian this is what libertarianism was and i do think it's true that in what 1973 and when i read it in 1979 1980 that is what libertarianism was i mean i tell this story i went to the state the michigan state uh, the state of michigan libertarian party convention in 1980 right and i won't name the person because it's actually someone who's pretty well known these days but but between sessions slipped out and and smoked pot with uh with <laughs> very well known libertarian. I mean, that's what the lp was right in 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 1980 and and uh, uh you know yay <laughs> yay so if you want to do this sort of bit of history i think two things guys it sadly it was reagan and reaganism that ended that period of libertarianism because it got reagan made it possible to to be more of a conservative and you know what we now call conservatarians is the word i'm thinking of here right right and, and reagan made it okay to do that and that's not a knock on reagan who i think is you know he had his there are plenty of problems with reagan but in many ways uh but but it changed the tone of the intellectual debate and suddenly the adam smith tie wearers and everybody else right were were were, were running the show and libertarianism became stuck to the right 
And so then you begin to read things like ethics of, and, and, and that Rothbard's own drift since then has been to been sort of was to the right. You know, I, I think that so I think it's fascinating that you mentioned the, the Ringer book and the context of the Ed Clark campaign. Oh, because I think a lot of young people, it's very hard for them. First of all, they didn't experience the collapse of communism. They didn't experience the stagflation of the 70s. So they their their whole life history that they are growing up in is the global financial crisis. Yeah, that's right. 9-11 happens after they're born. And many of the kids that we're teaching in college. Yeah. But like at, at our time, I, I was just thinking about this actually, is that um, we forget because Jimmy Carter has been such a humanitarian post his presidency, we forget how bad things were happening under his presidency that made, it's captured in movies, like if you watch the movie Miracle, they yep. show the general malaise in America at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, all and, that. and that recession was that, you know, we, we had that double dip recession too. Unemployment, yes. And I started college with a 10% unemployment rate. Right. And, 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 you know, I remember, you know, the whole thing. And so again, uh, I remember, you know, I voted it at first time. It's the only time and first time I ever voted was in the 1980 presidential election. And I voted for Ed Clark. Yep. And my father called me to want to know what, who I voted for. And I said, Ed Clark. And my father, there was silence. And, you know, and my father said, why is all voted for Daffy Duck? What the hell are you doing? And he hung up the phone on me, you know. And, but that made me want to study these ideas more. And anyway, but I registered for the draft. And there was a kid at the post office who had himself chained to the, to the mailbox and wearing a Ramones T-shirt. I remember looking yeah. at that and thinking yeah. like, Man, That's, and so there was all these issues about like the possibility of war because remember the Iranian hostage crisis all and the, and the invasion of Grenada. That was the big Grenada, right? That was the big one when I was like, what? So, there? so there's there's uh, issues about war. Rothbard yeah. has the anti-war. There's yeah. issues about the sort of uh, you know uh, uh, sort of the uh, uh, the inability to have labor markets be open because we're not going to get jobs. Yeah. People are going into a cash economy rather than you know a black market economy yeah. rather than the official economy because of all this marginal rates of taxation, all those things like that. And Rothbard has all of that. Yeah. So what's fascinating in that book is how he weaves a kind of uh, vision of, and in fact, it's even a vision of the founders. But there, it, it addresses the original sin, right? Because right. the found, it's not, it's just like in Lavoie's National Gun Planning. It's not that the founders or Jeffersonian vision is wrong; it's that it's incompletely applied. Yep. And so you get the whole connection to uh, Frederick Douglass, even yep. you know, Lysander right. Spooner. You know, again, right. I, I, I was I, I was reading. You know, I was writing something. I shared it with you earlier this year, and so I was rereading the. What is the Fourth of July? What what is yeah, uh, Fourth of July to the slave? Slave, yeah, right? Yeah. And you know who his citation is in there? It's Lysander Spooner. Spooner yeah, that's who he turns to at the end. <laughs> of this is the way that. And so you think about that. Rothbard ties that all in. We have all that, and so you have this idea. And so when we show up in 1985, 1984 for me right. at GMU, and you have Don, who's also you know sort right. of like trying to right. restate these ideas. Yep, it's that that. Rothbardian vision, yep. rather than the where Rothbard was at that time. Time, that's right. 
the other part, sorry for me, is the Ed Clark for President campaign headquarters in Michigan were almost walkable from my house. It was like right around the corner from my house, which was kind of just weird uh, as well. I was too young to vote. I was 16, right? So I couldn't have voted for him. Uh, so, All right, let's get back. Uh, yes. I wanted to have you, sorry about that detour, but I think no, it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's kind of, no, the reason why I think it's important is because a lot of, uh, there's a false imagery out there that somehow, you know, the, the Austrianism at GMU yeah. was one that both rejected Mises and Rothbard and played up Hayek and, and whatnot and, and yeah. played down Bombavrik and, yeah. you know, played up Menger because he's more ambiguous or whatever. And it's a totally false rumor. Like one of the things also is the claim that somehow, you know, we're inside the beltway, which first yep. of all, you have to come to Fairfax to see that we're not. And then you have to look at the people. Can you imagine Don Lavoie being a lobbyist for policy in DC. I mean, it's just not possible. And so, or you or I, we have, you know, we go down there, we tell them to stop doing what they're doing. Then we go back home to our nice little homes. And so it's, it's not really been an accurate portrayal of the way that people communicate the history. That's right. And I think they've underestimated, they've underestimated the radicalism of, right. Of folks too, right. There's a sense in which if you're a Hayekian, you must, you know, be a Hayekian of, of the road to serfdom policy or, or even the end of constitutional liberty, right? You're automatically, uh, you're automatically sort of more of an old liberal as opposed to a radical libertarian. Right. I was going to say before one last thing, I think the, the sort of, you know, Spooner, Douglas, Rothbard, all that stuff, it just, we, we've forgotten that we, we, meaning libertarians, liberals, were, have been on the right side of history. I don't like that expression, but, but it's the correct one here, right? That we really have been on the right side. Mill, right? We've been on the right side of history with this stuff. And, and, and for reasons that have to do, again, I think with American politics and the rise of the Soviet Union and the fact that we were anti-socialist and the conservatives were anti we, we sort of lost that and, and, and the attempts to bring it back. And what was awesome about Don was that Don understood that and wanted to bring it back and, and, yeah, yeah. and, and was a man of the left. Yeah, I mean, you know, we without just, question, we're doing this thing called the Don Lavoy Fellowships this mm-hmm. year, which we're doing appropriately online. You know, so it's like yeah. not hypertext stuff, right? Yep. Maybe we'll talk about that. But we should. The first book we read was National Economic Planning: What Is Left, and you know, you know, so I gave some lectures on it, and then I uh, did a, you know, contributed, you know, uh, to the to the online discussions and whatnot. And at least in my section or whatever of the discussions, the one thing that they had the hardest time wrapping their heads around was his last chapter. Yep. Which is, in fact, the chapter that defines your right. and my career. Right. And so, like, to me, it's so weird when they sit there and they can't, like, it's like, wait a minute, this is what Lavoie's arguing. But the reason is their context is so different. Yeah, that's right. And so they don't get it. But anyway, let's, let's not, I wanted to, I, I did want, you already explained my second question, which yeah. was about why GMU. Um, but I wanted to ask you about Lavoie as a mentor and, and, you know, why, why him, your interest, you know, and whatnot, yeah. do you remember your first impressions? You kind of gave that already. Yeah. And in your own way, how do you, when you think back at the circle around Don, both the older students and the younger students in your period, how do you see that circle and what was going on? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, 
I, I had I had an interesting, you know, my first couple of years at Mason were interesting because I was working with Don, but I was also working with George Selgin, who was there at the time, and and George left after two years, uh, and so you know I was the original plan was to kind of do something with both of them somehow, which would have been, uh, I, I think, a really interesting, fun though challenging in many ways project. Uh, like feet. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know. Hey, give it to Horowitz to do that one. Right. I was going to say, I was going to say, you, you know, yeah, uh, I, I don't know how, but it's, inter- it's an interesting what if to think yeah, that, how sure. that might have changed things. But in any case, but I think the thing about Don was Don was incredibly approachable. Uh, no, no, Don, let me put it even bigger. I think Don and others at, at the center at the time uh, treated us, but especially Don, treated us more like colleagues than grad students. And, and there was a sense in which from the very first day there uh, that we, we, meaning everyone, w- was all in this together. There was a, co- a sense of common purpose about not just how to educate grad students, uh, but, but about how to ch- change the world. You and I joke all the time about the 50-year plan, right? I mean, but, but there was a sense in which, okay, we, we really mean it, right? And, and, it's, and, and that there's a sense in which there were deep problems in the world that we wanted to see changed. And there were, there were problems in economics and problems the way economics was being done that, that we thought needed to be changed. And we thought the Austrians had important things to say and that whatever we could do to amplify that Austrian voice and, and increase, we're going to do it. Right. Um, and so I think that I never, almost everyone involved with the center at that time, uh, you never felt like you were being talked down to, like you weren't sort of, smart enough, like you weren't a contributor in some sense. I mean, I, I joke now that, that when uh, there was a point, I was Don's research assistant for a while, right? And so there was a point which the Austrian, uh, the, uh, the Austrian two class that Don taught, right? I was not yet able to take it because I was a year behind like you guys. But when you guys took it, I was Don's research assistant. Um, and I was on the reading list, right? <laughs> well, we were on the reading list, right? And, and that's, you know, that's like... When, where, how does that happen, right? And so, so, so Don's book, his encouragement was one thing, but it's also respect for, the, for what we were doing, right? I mean, his reputation's on the line too. You throw these grad, this paper by the grad students on, on, on the reading list, right? Um, I think that particular paper has held the test of time and he was right. But, but, it's, uh, but that, sense of, that sense of being empowered by, by Don and by others uh, was really important. And you talked to, you know, uh, uh, friends of ours from our generation, but who didn't go to George Mason, yeah, they had totally. a very different experience. I mean, NYU yeah. was a, you know, one thing, but even other places. And even today, you know, people go, Oh, I couldn't wait to get out of graduate school. I couldn't wait to get out. And we were like, Hey, this is the best four years we're ever going to have. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's pieces of, of, of that experience that I, that I miss every day. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, that's, I don't know, I, creating that, it's, it's creating that environment is, is amazing. And I, I would say, right. I think, one of the, you know, now standing from afar a bit, you've managed to do it there again, right? In a, in a different way and, and in a much, frankly, better and more powerful way. I mean, you have more resources at your disposal and, and the world's a different place. I mean, I, and I think I would say the one thing, and we, we talk about this a lot over the years, the one thing that what the center and those faculty members at the time didn't have, and especially Don, was they weren't networked into the profession. I mean, there was this little outpost in the middle of nowhere, you know, intellectually, academically in the middle of nowhere. And, and they just, no one, none of those guys knew how to play the game. 
the academic game. And it is remains something of a miracle that you and me and Dave and, and others walked out of there and got tenure track jobs in 1988, 89, 90. And it's on us that we've perhaps made the careers out of it that we have. But I think now about how you work, the intensity with which you work with grad students and you work your network to get your students placed and how successful you've been at that. Right. And, and that's, you know, tribute to you and the staff there, but we did it flying by the seat of our pants. And, and, you know, I mean, Karen was the one who had the connections, right. Sure. And Karen was the one who was in the, in the thing, but, and it was, and, and we can, we'll talk more about her later, but, but I think, you know, and, and that was great. And we met people. I mean, I, you know, I had, McCloskey writing a letter of recommendation for me coming out of grad school because McCloskey had come to visit Mason and, and we knew McCloskey. And I'm so, so, this, so there were things like that, but, but, you know, you expect your advisor to be the one, you know, at the prow of the front of the head of the ship, right? Yeah. That, that just wasn't done. Uh, and, and, and so we had they, to learn it. They made a funny joke recently in a conversation with you and I, um, and which is an exact memory when we were in our third year, yeah. It finally hit us that we need to get a job. After <laughs> all done. Before that, we never even really thought. No, of no. We, <laughs> Actually, to be honest with you, I think we thought jobs would just miraculously <laughs> land this on is, Right. Because our power of our ideas were so great. You know, the Lavoyan revolution was going to take place. It was, it was and, underway. It was, yeah, I, yeah. And, you know, Harvard's calling any minute. <laughs> uh, and we had good reason. I'm going to get to that in a second. Actually, believe me, it wasn't completely nuts right. uh, in, a, in a weird way. But... Um, <clears throat> I, I, we go to sit down with Don. We're like, Don, you know, people are starting, our classmates are starting to like talk about applying for jobs and everything like that. How do we go about applying for a job? And Don looks at us just, you know, just as plainly as me. He goes, I don't really know. Richie got this job. And he's like, can Richie get us a job? <laughs> like, what does that mean, Richie got Yeah, right. I, that wasn't, there isn't a section of the joke called Richie gets you a job, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I don't know if you remember this, but Dave and I in our third year graduate yep. school. You went on a couple of. Yeah. We, got, we got an interview yeah, with Hobart right. and William Smith yep. Colleges, right, which right. was doing a, uh, looking for heterodox economists that would teach pluralistic economics, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and so I did my interview and then Dave does his interview. And then we both meet up like, a, like afterwards to sit down and then say, well, what did you talk about? Oh, I talked about how the Bombavrick-Hilford debate can be taken forward to today to the Hayek Habermas debate. And Dave says, funny, that's what I said too. <laughs> and it's like, oh, <laughs> like, yeah. well, neither one of us got to right, right, right. right. Yeah, you were thinking they're going to have to flip a coin, but really that wasn't what was going to yeah, happen. So anyway, that was, uh, I mean, it was a kind of a very unusual time. Communism is starting to fray. Remember, Don was involved with uh, the Solidarity, yeah, uh, that's right. the, the sort of translations of Friedman and yeah, Hayek right. and, and whatnot over into, and Mises Polish. into Polish. Yeah. And so that was smuggled in as Samizdat periodicals and stuff. And all of that was going on. And Don writes these two books. And they were very, very well received professionally, right? Yes. So... We really thought that, yeah. you know. Well, right. And, and, and as you've often pointed out, you know, Larry White's book that I mentioned earlier and Don's book, Cambridge University Press. Right. This wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't Van Nostrand, right? 
all the, I mean, you know, without, you know, may it rest in peace, but also wasn't today, you know, uh, Amazon self-published, right? This was, this was Cambridge and, and, you know, at the time, not, you know, yeah, that this was a, this was a big deal. I I meant to mention earlier, just as a side point, um, you don't know this yet, but I'm, I'm going to be teaching uh, an online seminar for Francisco Marroquin in January, eight week thing for Francisco Marroquin as an adjunct faculty member. I get my own UFM email address on the economics of Don Lavoie. We're going to read both books. Oh, awesome. Yeah. We're going to read both books. And yeah, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Congratulations. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And so, uh, you, so, so as it, is it something that, uh, you know, we did reprints recently, so I yeah. had to go back and reread them. And I teach the comparative course, so I use sections yeah. from Lavoy all the time. Right. But uh, it did really strike me when we were doing the reprints um, and everything, like how, like I actually like looked at the manuscript anew, and then yeah. I went back and looked at my old notes and everything on it. And just what a like impact that those books had on the way that I think about. Yeah. I, I actually, in many ways, like, don't think I have any idea that isn't actually in those two books that I've ever said afterwards. Yeah, like, no, you know what I mean? Right. Like, I think like, oh man, I really came upon a brilliant insight. And then I'm looking at Lavoy and I'm like, man, Lavoy <laughs> <laughs> had it, you know, told me. Like, yeah. he it in that direction. I mean, obviously you worked in money and stuff, so it's a yeah. little but, Yeah, but but no, you're but I think but I think that's right about the the Here's what I'd say, right? I mean, I, I, the the big vision, right? The big picture of 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 how markets work and how we think about them. To me, that the knowledge problem chapter in National Economic Planning, yes. what's left, and and the mass communication stuff and all that, and social learning and all that. It, it, I reread it because I did a I did an online reading group on NEP a while back and had a chance to reread it. I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's all there. Uh, and, and and you know we've we've fleshed it out. All many of us have fleshed it out in all kinds of ways. But and, and I should note, by the way, you know the knowledge problem. People use that phrase all the time. That's Don's phrase. That's not Hayek's phrase. It's Don's phrase. Damn right. it! Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And well, it's also not Kersner's phrase. Kersner right. adopted. it. think about that. Right. Oh, I know. But I know. No. That you bring that up because. I've thought over the years that, you know, the, that I thought I was coming up with unique formulation by f- focusing on contextual nature of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Nope. That's, nope, in the point, that's right? there. Uh, epistemic institutionalism. Yeah, nope, it's there. The uh, you know, and here's the big one is that recently I've been like, you know, the whole arrow <coughs> formulation is like messed up is the comparison between politics and markets. Cause in arrows theorem, he sees them as damning to both processes. Right. And I'm like, but politics does try to aggregate uh, preferences from individual voting preferences to a social welfare function, right? Markets never do. They, yeah. The whole thing is markets are non-teleological. So there is no aggregating up. Right. All there is is communicating up. Right, that's right. And, and so I'm like, look at me. Like, I, you know, I like that. Say, again, Lavoie, you know? And, <laughs> and it's like damn, is there anything that I got? Like, you, yeah. know, you know, but it is, it is amazing how much he anticipated oh. and put his finger on things. Oh, I, I, you mentioned it earlier just off the cuff, but he's the first person I ever heard use the word hypertext. I mean, yeah. what Don was doing pedagogically with all that stuff in the mid, what, well, even when we were there, but certainly by the early mid nineties, he, he was way ahead of his time with that stuff. Yeah. And he glimpsed it. He saw what was going to happen. And, you know, I, I, 
this might go where we're going to go later, but I'm going to say it now. You know, one of two, if I could, I would love for Don to be here with us for many, many reasons. Strike me, by the way, that he would have turned 70 this year, yeah. which is, you know, Don at 70 is, that's hard. That's a, I'm, and I'm thinking about what, what Don at 70 would have been like. But, but, you know, one of the obvious thing I'm going to, if I could bring back, what would Don have to say about where we are politically right now and Trump and all? I mean, it, it would have been, you know, I, as I say to young student libertarians, you, you need to read Don to understand, you know, just to think about how you want to differentiate yourself from all these other things. Um, I was busted up, Steve, when you said the 50 year plan. Yeah. I put a note down. I say, well, didn't anticipate 2016. No. <laughs> and nope. that's the Senate in a derail. Yeah. No. That's no. <laughs> like, like 50 Nor- and we could survive 9 11. We could survive <laughs> right. a global financial crisis. Right. But boom. Boom. No. I'm like, nope. what yeah. the hell just happened? Yeah. yeah. No. And and now, frankly, 2020, right? I mean, not Trump, the pandemic stuff. We can talk yes. about that later. But yeah. yeah. But it's, yeah. But, but the other thing is, you know, I think. Well, I think. Steve, I, I make a distinction there, and, and maybe we can talk about this, but I think the pandemic is liberalism tested. Yes. Whereas the issues with Trump and yes. the current things about racism, nationalism, right. odious doctrines, that's li- liberalism challenge. Dis- right, or and distorted. So it's, well, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I call it challenge because it's not liberalism. Right, right. And so it's a challenge of an alternative system. Yes. Yeah, that's a good distinction. The, the pandemic Test just us. says we got a ma- massive global public good. Right. How that's do you right. Handle it in a that's way right. that's consistent with the rule of law that's and right. liberal institutions. That's that's right. So I I I I think that that's anyway. Let's get. So yeah. I want to capture back again, Mason. It's hard for us to do it because we see these things seamlessly uh, because our experience was so formative for the way we thought about everything. But yeah. one of the big things that happened, you mentioned it earlier, is about you know choosing Mason. Over like a more established program like NYU or or whatnot. In my own case, you know, I was choosing between NYU and and Auburn and also Rutgers uh, and staying back in New Jersey or whatever. Um, And uh, and choosing Mason. And when I chose Mason, the neighbor to my in-laws lived in Arlington. He moved to Arlington, and he went to the old George Mason Law School. And he told my in-laws, because I was picking up Rosemary and we were moving, right, away from home. And he told him, he said, he goes, that's a really weird choice. It's like kind of going to Montclair State to get a PhD. I don't understand why they would move, you know, to Montclair State to get a PhD when he could get a PhD at Rutgers. Like, why is he doing it? So here I am, we're packing boxes or whatever. My father-in-law's like, what the hell are you doing, you know? And I'm like, I'm going there because the professors there are really great. And, you know, it's all great. And so then in 1986. Right. One of the things that happened in in my world was I found out that Buchanan won the Nobel Prize at 6 a.m. in the morning because my mother called me (laughs) at 4.30. And she said, your professor just won the Nobel Prize. And I'm like, yes, he did. Yes, he did. (laughs) So, you know, if – if we had Facebook and Twitter back then, right? I, my 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 Facebook post that morning would have simply been hashtag windfall profit. Yes. Right? Because, <laughs> because yeah, I mean there was there was going to Mason when we did was a risk, and it and it I think it shows just as you said it shows our dedication to the ideas and the people and to the experience because 
it was a third-rate program, right? And and well, brand new. Right, brand new. Oh, brand new. Brand, brand new. new. Brand new. Okay. Yeah. I mean, perceived to be a third rate program, right. right? Yeah. And 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 you know, my dad, we I my dad and I had a couple conversations for obvious reasons about about this. And and I said, look, you know, same as you. I said, these are the this is what I want to do. These are the people I, I want to work with. These are students I want to I want to be with. Um, by the way, keep in mind, Don Levoy is an assistant professor. Yeah, I know. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Right? No, and no, I, we. It, 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 my family is not academic like you, but I have one other academic in my family. It's my aunt, who we're very close with. And she was a dean at yeah. the University of Connecticut. Okay. And so my father's telling her, Peter's going to go off to graduate school. And she's like, oh, well, he's getting a PhD. Who's he studying with? And she, and she comes back to my dad and she says, he's an assistant professor. Assistant professors may not even be there, you know, when, yeah. when he's there. You know, does Peter know what he's getting into? And I will say for my aunt, the good news is, is I, I did have a conversation with her and I said, look, Aunt Law, I said, it could be law school or it could be graduate school. And she says, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I think I want to be a scholar. And she says, well, you don't want to go to law school. Law school that's right. She says, because law school is only going to train you to be a lawyer. Yeah. She says, you could become a legal philosopher, but you only, you only have to go to Harvard or someplace like that. You can't do it if you go to, you know, uh, like the schools I was looking at. Yeah, you know? right, right. So anyway, my, yeah. go back and talk about Buchanan. Yeah. You were in so, his yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't remember how I found out. Right. Uh, nobody called me at six o'clock in the morning. No, and no, one, no one knocked on my door at two fifteen either, <laughs> by the way. Uh, that, that's the best thing I've seen. Yeah, that, it's that's awesome. it's awesome. Anyway. Uh, so I, I, I pretty sh- my memory is coming in to the office that morning and someone telling me, remember kids, there was no email. There was no web, right? We, you know, someone had to call you or you walked into the office and you right, find out. Cell phones. Right. No, no cell, right. No cell phones. So, and I remember, I remember him, the press and everything. I remember being over at the public choice center and him dealing with the press and, and, you know, Professor Buchanan, how, how are you going to spend your money? Well, I think that's going to spontaneously emerge, right? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, uh, which was great. And, and, of course, you know, I got interviewed uh, <laughs> by the press, by USA Today, the, right. the kids there was USA Today back then. Um, and I was quoted, right? <laughs> because, because I got a B in his class in economic right. philosophy. I got a B. And so I had this, well, I got a B in his class, but he was great. And I loved, you know, let's see all these things. And, um, and, and that was, you know, so they had, they had an angle with me. But anyway, so yeah, that was great. I mean, and it was, Windfall Profit was right. I mean, it was like, like okay, we, we took a chance and now it's paid off. Uh, suddenly, George Mason has an identity. And, and when we did decide it was time to think about getting a job, uh, the conversations were different than they would have been had that not happened. Had, I don't I also, you know. I wonder if you can also like, you know, relate it back to your point about the attitude of the teachers towards the students. Yeah. Because despite the fact that Tulloch was foreboding, he also <laughs> was inviting. <laughs> and, right? so and, it's yes. Not like he told us, you listen to me. He wanted right. to argue with you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you would meet him and he'd say, he'd say insulting things, you know, mm-hmm. to you. But that point was for you to say insulting things back. Like that, to him. Right. And, right. And, uh, and Buchanan was always there willing to like, I described the difference in teaching style as, um, so for years I had a, a, a fortune cookie saying on my door and it said, a fool 
a, a wise man learns more from the fool than the fool will ever learn from the wise man. And people would say, why do you have that? And I said, that reminds me of Jim Buchanan. Because when you were in his class, you have these inane comments students would raise. Again, we had him before he won the Nobel Prize. So he was there. He was available. <clears throat> and usually one of the, the, the students that were, you know, the part-time students would raise right. a question. And Buchanan would try to turn it into a question that was really valuable for the whole class to benefit from. Yep. Whereas Tulloch tried to like, you know, cut you to a, you could ask a genius question and he would test it by this. But the, in both cases, they were inviting you to be part of an ongoing conversation right. in their and, own ways. And Buchanan, what I didn't realize how, that he was doing until later also was he was using us as sounding boards for his own work. Right. right. I mean, we, we did all that stuff with the deer and beaver model, right, in that class. And I'm like, I'm, you know, part of me is going, why the hell, what is he doing, right? What is this? And then he starts writing, then it becomes key to what he's writing over the next few years. And you go, oh, okay. He was playing, right? He was playing with ideas. He was playing with us in a good sense, right? Sort yeah. of letting us play with those ideas and see what came out of it and see how, what he could do with it. And that's, I mean, both of those, that's really good pedagogy. And the other thing about turning student questions around to make them, you know, sound smarter than they are is also outstanding pedagogy you know, with undergraduates too, because it's going to, it's going to happen. No, that's right. I might, you know, and Tulloch, both Tulloch and Buchanan also, we've talked about this before, you know, they had this sort of, uh, the relationship with Austrian economics was, was love, hate isn't right, but, but it was, you know, not two feet in, that's <laughs> what it was one foot in. And, and, but, but what they both recognized was that the Austrian program was bringing the really good students into Mason at the time. That's where the really good students were coming from. And, and you know, the, the famous story about Tulloch, where a bunch of us were standing around in the old center, you know, arguing probably about some stupid point in methodology or something like that, screaming at each other. Tulloch walks by and looks, pokes his head in, pauses for a bit, and he looks because. Well, you, I can say one thing about you, you Austrians. You might be crazy, but at least you're enthusiastic. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, I, and that's, but okay. I do think that uh, Dave, so I have a kind of a, a different memory. You know, the, like siblings uh, yep, all have yep. a relationship with their parents, but there's a commonality, but all of them are different as well. So sometimes when I hear my sister or brother talk about being raised in our household, I'm like, what household were you raised in? <laughs> right, that was right. And sometimes I feel this also with students and, you know, mentors of, right. of different people. So one very famous Buchanan student one time said to me, I had no idea he was a classical liberal. And I like spit my coffee out. I was like, well, why? <laughs> like, how could you actually like fit that or whatever? <clears throat> but this point that you were doing is like also with Karen Vaughn, yep. she'll tell me, she goes, oh, Buchanan didn't didn't like the Austrians or, you know, or Tulloch or whatever. But at the same time, like I'm in their archives and I'm like reading them. I had conversations with them for years. Mm -hmm. And I think the key issue is that they had, they, they had a distance from the Austrian movement, movement. but they had movement. an appreciation of particular arguments right. and that great respect for the arguments. And right. so when we came along, they understood we were part of a movement but they also understood that we also had some ideas which they thought should be developed yes. more and encouraged. And right. it's this so, kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So that, yes, I would, the way I put that is, is, is they didn't want to be part of the, they didn't want to be part of the Austrian movement, but they had respect for the Austrian school. Yeah. And that's, and so I just recently, I've been, uh, I did a sort of one-on-one -on -one reading group thing going through cost and choice. And 
that's you know that we've always said, and it's true. It's his most Austrian book, but but it's in a couple of interesting ways. Those that we all pay attention to the cost and choice chapter, but the one before chapter two in that book, where he walks through the history, it's yeah, also three Mises, right? Yeah. It's Mises, and yeah. and Mises, and Mises. Not only it is Mises was right is the lesson from there, right? And and so. Yeah, I mean, you've made this point about other things in, in, in sort of with public choice and property rights, economics, and all these other kind of things about the way that Austrian ideas were perceived, you know, before there was an Austrian movement, Austrian ideas were, and this is, you know, this oh, is I, the, I, this is the interesting thing. I hadn't made this connection until we're talking, but that makes the Wasserman book both more interesting and more frustrating at the same time. Yes. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, that's a whole other story, actually, yeah. about how to, to sort that out. But I, I think that the history of Austrian economics in America, to use the title Karen Vaughn used, um, <clears throat> that she wrote a great book at the time that she wrote it. It's very good or whatever. But the, 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 the dirty laundry, in many ways, doesn't get like exposed. So it's not like a book like Wasserman's. Right. You could write that book, but you, in some sense, I think it has to be. Okay, so I, I, I think it's going to be written in very biased ways by various different people. And ironically, I think this is a hermeneutics point. People that maybe have too much distance can't even access it because so much of it is in underbelly things. Yep. So the fact that Buchanan wants to distance himself from the Austrian movement and Tulloch, I think is a function of post-1976. I think if you look prior to 1976 – they were very much the yeah. like Austrian economics is a legitimate body of thought in the same way that property rights economics is or whatever. But in post 1976, and it's not Kirzner. Nope. It's all Murray because Murray ties it to a political movement. That's right. In a way that it never was before. That's right. And that's what I was trying to get at before about Aust 1973. Right. Aust in 1973, when we're reading Rothbard for the first time, which is after 1976, but it's the 1973 right. book. That's right. That Before anyone ever used the term Austro-Libertarian. Right. Right. That's there, there right. And, and so it's- Because it didn't exist, right? It yeah. didn't exist as a movement. And right. so, and, and the idea that you could derive all the laws of economics from the action axiom and all the principles of poli uh, politics from the non-aggression axiom and then put them together yeah. and have an architectonic system was not in the mindset yeah, that's right. of- of, of people like Buchanan. And right. so what Buchanan didn't want to do is have the laws of economics tied Conflated to with. Conflated right. with it. And so yeah. he's going to distance. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that the, the, uh, if I was writing that history, so I want to hear your view of this, because yeah. we inherited that without knowing this history, which is that I think the pivotal event was in 81 when they had the 100th anniversary of Mises. Because when they were at that, that conference, it's important to remember Rothbard's paper got rejected. Hmm. All right. So when they were, it got published in journal of libertarian studies rather yeah. than in the volume, in he the got volume. a comment on Lavoie. Think about that. A person of, high, of, of, of his stature was forced to provide his contribution right. to that book as a comment right. on, on Lavoie rather than a full blown piece. And the reason was he wrote, and I, by the way, I love Rothbard's piece for that volume. So I actually think, you know, people are wrong, but it was the quest for the historical Mises, Mises right, right. And, which is his radicalization of Mises from the 1919 book and all of that. 
Um, but it ties Mises as an Austro-Libertarian, basically, right, or right. some version of it. Right. Not a natural rights guy, but nevertheless right. radical liberal. And I think that changes the way that they interact with this school of thought. So rather than viewing it as something that they're... Well, it would be interesting to see what the Liberty Fund conferences that Buchanan and Tulloch attended and put together in the 60s and 70s looked like in terms of their reading lists yeah. with respect to Austrian economics, because I, I suspect that they were very respectful and, and all that. And, and it is, and notice by the way, your date is interesting, 1981, which also, I mean, all, all look, 19, in 1973 and four, all the good things happened, right? Kersner, Nozick's book, uh, 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 the, the Nobel Prize. Oh, yeah, the first Rush album, too, but we'll put that <laughs> Okay. So all the good things happen in 73 and 74. All the problems start to happen in 80 and 81. If go back to my point about Reaganism and all that, right? That, that, sort of, that, that sort of put us in these tensions that we're still dealing with today. And you're right. I think, think the problem with, with the history is the outside, like on Wasserman, Wasserman's book isn't terrible. It's, there's some yeah. good stuff in there, right? But, but he can never get it because he wasn't in it. And everyone who was in it will never be able to write something that's, you know, objective, objective enough anyway that everyone's going to say, yes, this is the history. So I, I was just telling this to someone the other day, and I think this is a Lavoie point that you and I share, is that Don, again, not only was he advanced in hypertext, but think about the way he taught us how to read text. So we were already excited as intellectual historians in what you would call context Ideas have context. So you had to understand who Mises was arguing with to understand why he chose the argument he did. And, and in what language. You, <laughs> yes, and then how you would reconstruct it for today rather than the idea that it was disembodied from anything, right? And when we did history, as you know, because you wrote a great paper on the Panic of 1907 and stuff, is that <clears throat> we were taught to write history not of kings and queens, but of the impact on everyday people. So we were doing social history as yeah. well. So we were, we were context, ideas in context, and we were social history people, as opposed to quantitative history or history only of kings and queens. Right. And so that meant we were going to do everyday people, the impact of, of economic life on everybody, and the context of ideas involving the whole growth of knowledge. Right. That really is the McLean, Wasserman, yeah, uh, so beyond you know, kind of position, you know, but it depends on the eyeglasses that you bring to bear on it. I think, and Don was again way ahead of his time on all this. I just I'm writing down the phrase that you snuck in there: the impact of economics on the lives of everyday people. Um, I I know because you sent me the questions ahead of time. Yeah. I know there's a question later on about what. What's the overarching theme in Horwitzian economics? Yeah. I, think th I think that's it. I think that's it. Um, I think, you know, I... I hey, that's your I, report it, card? That's all that stuff. Right, right. And it's, well, and it's right. And it's the Julian, it's the Julian Simon stu award yeah. stuff, right? I mean, it's, it, I never, that, that phrase is pretty good capture of, of maybe what ties together all the family stuff, right? I mean, all, all of that stuff kind of, what, what why does it, why does understanding economics and why does understanding economic history matter for the lives of everyday people? That is, uh, yeah, that's uh, the, the economics of everyday people would not be a bad essay collection title, would it?
Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.